Good evening. Thank you for coming tonight to remember the price that Christ paid for us. So it's kind of a solemn evening, um, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's a good Friday because our sin debt was paid. Amen? That's what makes it good. Uh, the cost is, is hard. It was incredibly hard. In fact, so hard, only he could have done it for us. So we're going to go through the, the seven sayings on the cross. The elders are going to take turns with a, a couple of sayings each. And we're going to sing some songs about the cross in between. And we'll end with communion and a final song. So uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we come to this evening and in a sense our hearts are heavy because we know that you had to be there for us and there was no other way. So Lord, we come with great gratitude and we can't ever thank you enough for paying the price that we could not pay. And so Lord, uh, be with us through the service and pray that you're glorified in everything that's said. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
You may be seated. Good Friday to everyone. Um, it's kind of weird that we do call it Good Friday, but you know, when you're going over it, it brings about mixed emotions. You know, who would think that you could have grief with the joy in the in the same moment based upon the same event? But you know, it just goes to show that God's ways are not our ways, nor are his thoughts our thoughts. And the way he accomplished the salvation that we don't deserve brings about grief because we're the reason he was nailed to that tree, but joy because he chose to accomplish salvation on that tree. So I have um, the first two scenes on the cross and the, the first one is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the second one is today, you will be with me in paradise. And they're, they're both in Luke. And uh, before I start with the first one, we'll give a little context of the buildup because Father forgive them has to do with the context of what was going on. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, first Jesus was betrayed by a kiss from one of his disciples, Judas. Then he was arrested and abandoned by his disciples. So first he's betrayed and then he's abandoned by those who are the closest to him. And then he's denied by the one whom he said would lead the church three times who even calls curses down upon himself, Peter. So while he was being falsely arrested, Jesus was mocked, beaten, and slandered by his captors. And this is first the temple guard, the chief priests. And then Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin because of declaring where he would be, his authority and who he was as the one prophesied to come. You will see me seated at the right hand of God. That's the charge, that's the saying they used to condemn him, but he wasn't lying. Neither Pilate nor Herod could find a charge worthy of capital punishment. Nevertheless, he was unjustly flogged or severely beaten. And then he was traded for an insurrectionist and murderer. And it's kind of ironic because the guy he was traded for was the hope they had in their Messiah, one who would topple the Roman authorities and establish the kingdom like David had. And in the same way that he was denied by Peter three times, 
the people who were led by the priests petitioned Pilate three times to condemn him. Three times he said no. Three times they said yes. Despite Jesus' innocence, Jesus still to this point has not pronounced a judgment after he has been unjustly arrested, beaten, mocked, and slandered, declared guilty, flogged, and unjustly condemned. And then he proceeded to carry the cross to which he would be crucified. And this is where the first saying starts. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus echoes through this action, Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 12, and Matthew 44. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then let me go to verse 12, because that's that's a seven. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And, and keep in mind, too, he wasn't just mocked and slandered by Jews. It was by the whole world. It was by Jew and Gentile. The Romans did the same thing to him as well. But the first thing he utters on the cross is, Father, forgive them, which means to stop blaming or take an offense into account, for they know not what they do. Now, now, keep in mind, this is separate from the salvation being accomplished. He's talking about the people who are proven and who have put this crucifixion into order. And when he utters this, it makes me think of what great and immeasurable grace is being displayed by our meek God. This is meekness in full display because God will not be mocked or slandered. Yet here our Savior is being mocked and slandered by the people whom should have known who he was and by the world he came to save. So forgive them for they know not what they do. How could they not know that Jesus was the Messiah? The lame walked, the mute talked, the blind received their eye, their sight, and the sick were healed, and the dead brought back to life. How could they not know that they were crucifying the Lord of glory? Well, first, their eyes were blinded and their hearts were hardened. But also, too, they did not see him as the Lord of glory because their Lord was the glory of the world. 
a Roman would think it pure foolishness to say that this is your king, this is your Messiah, this is your Christos, the anointed one. And the Jews expected him to come in and push the Romans out. They desired temporal salvation, deliverance from Roman oppressors, not eternal salvation, deliverance from the oppression of sin. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So even while he's on the cross, he is crucified between two criminals. The word criminal in Hebrew can literally mean evildoer, those who do evil. And one of the criminals starts by railing at him and saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us, which Relin can be translated as blasphemed. He's been continually blasphemed. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And it's kind of cool to see that the gospel is in full swing on the cross because that criminal recognized he deserved the punishment and that Jesus did not. And then Jesus responds after he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now keep in mind, there was something above him called in three, di three in different languages said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He recognized who he was and who his kingdom or what kingdom he was about to preside over. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So even while he was on the cross, you have the gospel because what did this criminal do to deserve to be in paradise? He didn't do anything. He believed that he deserved his punishment and Jesus was innocent. And that's why Jesus could say today, you will be with me in paradise. And what is paradise other than the love of God in full display in unveiled glory for eternity? And keep in mind, I think it, and this is coming from uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards a little bit, <laughs> that I imagine that when we're in heaven, there's never gonna be an end to the intensity of God's love, whether it's God's love being displayed on us or us displaying God's love to each other. It's gonna grow increasingly and increasingly. And that, that, that gives me hope, too, because, you know, uh, 
And chances are, if I was back in those days, I would have been on that cross next to him. But unfortunately, I don't know if at that time I would have been the one saying, let me come into your kingdom with you. But that shows it's based upon belief. The cross in and itself does not have power. It's what was accomplished on it and who hung from it that gives it its power. I have the next three sayings, and the first one is from John 19, 20, verse 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. We assume that this is John the Beloved because in his gospel, he, he never mentions his own name. He just calls himself the one who Jesus loved. And somehow, I guess by the Holy Spirit, Jesus knew that John would outlive his brothers. And so instead of giving his mother to one of his own family, he gave her to John the Beloved. And John the Beloved um, remained in Ephesus. Uh, if you visit Ephesus, you can go to Mary's home in Ephesus, where traditionally that where she lived. We don't know if it's really the place, but he took care of her there, except for the time he was on the Isle of Patmos. But after he was released from Patmos, he went back to Ephesus and lived out his last days. Um, Mary, of course, passing before him. Jesus when he said these words, was struggling for a breath to speak. You know, uh, in crucifixion, the way the body hangs, the air is inhaled, and to exhale, they had to pull up on the nails in the wrist and push on the nails in the feet part of the back would, that was torn from the whips would rub against that cross. And so each, each of the expressions ha took a great deal of agony and pain to say. And you would think with all that Jesus was dealing with, with the sins of the world coming upon him and knowing he was going to be separated from the Father, that why Why is he going to bother with his mother in this situation? But family is imp an important obligation. It's God first and then family. And the scriptures, in fact, he was keeping one of the commandments to honor your father and mother. Because it pictures honoring God and the church. Jesus, the Lamb of God, hung there, gasping for each painful breath in sheer agony. And about noon, says the sixth hour, which is noon, the darkness descended over the scene for three hours as hell assailed our Lord. And Jesus bore it all. 
all the evil of humanity throughout time, all the justice that mankind deserved was poured out on him. Matthew 27, 45 and 46, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So from noon to three o'clock, there were those hours of darkness over which Jesus had sweat those drops of blood in the garden. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The darkness represented God turning his face away from the horror of that scene, like a father would not want to watch his son in unbearable agony. Jesus was alone to resist the forces of hell, the just punishment for your sins and for mine. The last four expressions came one after the other during that afternoon sacrifice taking place in the temple. The priest would blow the shofar to announce that 3 p.m. sacrifice. And during that time, it was when Jesus said these last four expressions. He cried out those opening words of Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Each word took a painful breath. There's no clearer passage in ancient scripture regarding the crucifixion than the psalm that Jesus was quoting. Those present who knew the psalm might have quoted the rest of it to themselves in the darkness as they waited for the light and realized that King David predicted the very event they were watching a thousand years before. They would have understood from the end of the psalm that the conclusion of this event is somehow going to be victorious. I think that Jesus was encouraging himself to fight on through the words of that psalm while pointing his disciples to the encouraging ending. The psalm ends with God promising to hear his cry. And the closing words of the psalm predict the salvation for many and the whole earth worshiping him. Jesus was fighting with scripture, just like he fought Lucifer in the wilderness with scripture. It's my conviction that this was not a cry of despair, but a battle cry. Read the psalm for yourself and see if the ending is not declaring to Satan that though he does his work, God will be victorious and Jesus will rule over the nations. Then Jesus spoke, John 19, 28. After that, this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. John reminds us of an expression that was one of the many predictions fulfilled in Psalm 22. The expression in Psalm 22 was, my tongue sticks to my jaws. There are a total of seven sayings on the cross. John only mentions three. The one that had to do with him personally, and this one that's a fulfillment of Psalm 22, as this seemed to be a focus of the Passion account. 
Dan's going to speak of the last two. I thirst speaks of the humanity of Jesus. The cross was not easier because he was the son of God. He felt what we feel. He was tempted like we are, and yet without sin. He knew what a hard day's work was like. He knew what it was like to be pushed to the, to the limit of human endurance. He knew insult and injury and even family rejection. He was every bit human, but without sin. You know, we're tempted to think it wasn't as hard for him because he was God. Not as hard as it would be for us, but actually it was worse. He knew the darkness of sin to a greater extent than we will ever understand. And he took it along with the physical abuse. We can never understand the assault of hell on him during those three hours of darkness. If it was you or I, we would have given in in a second. And that's another reason why only he could do it. Because he had no sins of his own to be judged for. And only he could endure the justice that our sins deserve and come out victorious. Hallelujah. What a savior. Jesus was wetting his parched throat for the last two saying, which both came with a loud voice according to Luke's gospel. He musters his final ounces of strength to shout a declaration for all the world to hear. John 19.30 tells us that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The Bible quotes a three word phase, phrase, it is finished as a modern day translation of the single Greek word that appears in the original text, which is testelestai. It was a common expression in the marketplace during the time of Jesus. Testelestai was essentially a declaration of the completion of a business transaction. When we moved to Sedona, we quickly learned that our house needed a new roof. So we signed a contract with a roofer. The day we signed the contract, we made a 50% down payment, and then we waited. And we waited a very long time, because at that time, there were more roofing projects in Sedona than there were roofers. But finally, one day, a roofing crew showed up at our house and installed our new roof. When the work was completed, I walked the roof with the foreman, found that what they had done was acceptable, and paid the balance of the agreement, which the roofer in turn took the invoice and stamped paid in full. This is a contemporary example of Tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full, a done deal. It's a cry of victorious achievement. No more leaky roof. But let's unpack it a little more with the English translation, namely the words quoted as being spoken by Jesus. It is finished. Uh, 
It can often be an insignificant, banal pronoun, just two letters. Many times the word is used not to reply, reply to anything in particular. Uh, do you think it will rain today, for instance? But Jesus, when he says it, as part of the last word he speaks loudly so that everyone can hear, this two-letter word becomes the most important hinge pin in redemptive history. The future of all mankind turns on the it that Jesus counts as finished. Notice he doesn't say, I am finished. He's dying on the cross. It's not, I am finished. He said, it is finished. Testellus die. Exactly. What was paid for completely and fully? What is it? Ephesians 1, 4 to 6 tells us that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed in us, the beloved. Scripture tells us that before the world began, before sin entered creation through Adam and infected all mankind with a debt of sin that we could never repay ourselves, that God had a plan to redeem those who would trust in Jesus Christ. Before any human being needed to be redeemed, God planned to adopt us as sons and present us as holy and blameless before God. God knew that sin would make our spiritual roofs leaky. And he put in place a plan to replace our spiritual sinful houses with new roofs of redemption to the praise of his glorious grace. So after man sinned, made a, God made a down payment for his plan. He made a covenant first with Abraham and then with Moses and, and Isaac and Jacob. And this is the first part of it that was finished on the cross. Uh, God almost promised that he would, he would finish the job it by acting a new covenant. And in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took, the, took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his, uh, teach his neighbor and teach his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. For the Old Testament covenant, while it was a promise to, to, to the whole world, it was a down payment on forgiveness of sins. It's, it's like buying God's forgiveness on the layaway plan. Each year on the Day of Atonement, Israel would make a sacrifice but that was really just a payment to avoid foreclosure on their sin debt. 
Not long after that, their sin roof was leaking again, and they'd do it again the next year. The book of Hebrews tells us that the perfect sacrifice of a holy life by Jesus on, uh, on the cross paid our sin debt once and for all. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Testelestai, it is finished. Our sin debt is paid in full. No leaks in a perfectly new roof, planned by God before the foundation of the world so that we could enter into the new covenant with Jesus. The last words that Jesus spoke on the cross were recorded in Luke chapter 23. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Each of the Gospels marks with exceptional clarity that Jesus' death was completely in his control and entirely voluntary by him. In Matthew 27:50, it says Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Uh, in Mark, it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Then Jesus called out in a loud voice, as we, what we just read here in Luke, uh, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And in the book of John, what we just read before, after he says it was finished, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus, being fully human, lived a sinless life in full obedience to the will of his Father, something required for redemption and something that we sinful people can never do. In John 17, before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed to God, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And Jesus, being fully God, was able to exercise complete control over life and death. John 10, 17 through 18 says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Therefore, Jesus is the ground, the basis of a new covenant, and it has taken effect because of the sacrifice he made. He is responsible for putting it into effect. Christ not only provided the ground for the new covenant promises by, by dying on the cross for it, he became the goal. Jesus is both the ground of our salvation and the glory we were, sa we were saved to see and savor and share. He was the price that was paid for our deliverance and the prize we are destined to enjoy. He redeemed us from hell and rewarded us for himself. In the new covenant, God promises forgiveness of sins, new hearts that treasure God above all, and that he himself would be our God in joyful fellowship forever, like we read in Jeremiah 31. In his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus became the foundation of these new promises. And not only the foundation, but also the goal. 
in the beauty of the love and wisdom and power of his triumphant suffering, Christ displayed the glory that his people will exult forever. He became the price and prize of the new covenant, the ground and the goal, the redemption and reward. This was God's plan for us before the foundation of the world. In a moment, we're gonna take communion together and we will remember that in his death on the cross, Christ reconciled us to God so that as, a, as new covenant believers, we can have fellowship with him. Matthew 26, 27, 28 says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It was just the night before that they celebrated the Last Supper, before this, this event. It was l l later that night after the supper, you know, the tummies full from the Passover meal that the disciples couldn't stay awake and pray with Jesus. And then a little bit after that, he was arrested. But we're going back to that last meal that they had together, a Passover meal. And Jesus didn't follow the normal Seder tradition of the time. He took the bread and he said it was his body that was broken for them. That was completely out of tradition, but Jesus knew. In fact, Jesus taught, he said that in John chapter six, he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I'm the manna. Manna was just a picture of me. I came down from heaven so that a man may eat of it and not die. And then one of the few things that Jesus gave us as a, a repeated ritual, one was baptism, and the other one is the meal that we're about to share. So Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And you'll notice that the wafers are striped and pierced, representing that he was scourged and pierced for us. I'm gonna ask the ushers to distribute it, hold it, and we'll take it together.
Thank you, Lord. We've just gone over the words that you spoke as you paid the price, your body torn and punished in our place. And this bread representing that torn and broken body, we now take, so as to say, we receive what you've done for us. We thank you that you took our place, that you took our punishment. We know there was no other way. So we thank you for paying the price. And we take it now with gratitude, remembering that you did this for us in Jesus' name. The third cup of the meal was called the cup of redemption. It was especially meaningful because Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, the covenant that redeems us, the blood that redeems us. It really truly became the cup of redemption. Again, I'll ask the ushers to distribute it and we'll take it together. scriptures tell us that the life of the flesh is in the blood and the soul that sins must die 
but Jesus shed his blood for us. He poured out his life for us. That's what this represents. The blood of the new covenant. You know, I just noticed for the first time as as um, Dan was reading that new covenant promise in Jeremiah that he said he was a husband to them. He was a husband to Israel. It's always been God's intention. It's a marriage covenant. The new covenant is a marriage covenant. And the Apostle Paul tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. So as we take it, remember, it's the covenant and his blood that joins us to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the words of Isaiah that said, your maker is your husband. We don't know how you could love us like that, but we're so grateful that you do. And we take this, remembering you poured out your life in our place to make us yours. So we take it now with gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll sing one closing song. Made my ransom. 
Remember what Jesus has done for us. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Hallelujah. <laughs>